Good evening, Rifters. This is Rifts and Rules, the 5e D&D podcast, where we go through the many 5e books and talk about various rules to enhance your gameplay experience. I'm Nathan, the Dungeon Master of Riftwake. And I'm Remy, a player on Riftwake and a Dungeon Master myself. And today, we're here to talk to you about demons. <sighs> so, demons are obviously a classic thing in all mythologies going back for all of human history. So, of course, they are quite a large part of Dungeons & Dragons in every edition. So, in 5th edition, demons are actually a subcategory of fiend-type monsters. So fiends includes both demons and devils. So for the sake of this episode, we're going to focus more on the demon side of things and devils and devil deals and such. We will talk about more in a future episode on its own. So that being said, let's talk about some demons. So they are a rather odd creature in that there are many, many dozens of different types of demons scattered throughout all of the Dungeons & Dragons books. Well, okay, not all of the books, but a lot of them. So there's a bunch in the Monster Manual, there's a whole bunch in the Descent into Avernus book, the Tomb of, uh, the Tome of Foes, uh, there's a couple in the Ravnica book, Volo's Guide, all over the place. You get the idea. And uh, I'm sure there's a few that I'm still missing. The point being, demon is not a creature. There are definitely cases where there are some demons that are the same, but it is very much a thing where dungeon masters have a lot to pick from and are not limited in the given options. So according to the lore of 5th edition demons, they are from the Abyss, capital A, which is uh, infant layers of planes that are somewhat what we could call hell. However, the actual nine hells of D&D, our devils are. So demons are from a whole separate category. They are other, somewhat closer to aberrations, in all honesty. And the way that they behave could be argued to actually be closer to aberrations than many give them credit. Or not credit, but you know what I mean. Anyway, so because of the fact that they are just from a chaotic plane of existence, they are alignment-wise always considered to be chaotic evil. Again, as is always the case, whether you want to use that particular rule in your game depends on your own world's cosmology. But in the rules as written, all demons are automatically chaotic evil all the time. Now, one thing that is not always done correctly in regard to demons is that because they are all chaotic evil, that does not mean that they're all chaotic stupid. A smart demon can create all kinds of schemes and plans just like any other creature. And if taking some obviously stupid action would prevent its long-term plan, it's not going to do that. So in general, properly, quote-unquote, playing a chaotic evil creature, especially a smart chaotic evil creature, is something that a lot of dungeon masters struggle with, so hence this warning. Anyway, so in terms of what demons are actually capable of, that is somewhat complicated. There are, from like the lowest forms all the way up to demon lords, a massive amount of variability in terms 
terms of their potential abilities. So I'm actually going to start at the top this time because, well, demon lords are arguably the most fun. It's at least my personal bias, the cool part of demons. So throughout the books, there are a number of listed demon lords that actually give you full stat blocks for them. So as a dungeon master, there is a lot that you can get out of demon lords by having them either just in the background laying schemes or just as the object of worship for demonic cultists or, I mean, directly potentially just having one as a node warlock patron. You can have them much more directly involved in your game should you choose to do so. So a demon, well, actually, sorry, let me zoom out back and back up for a moment. So there is one detail of all demons that I would argue is a fact that most people have no idea is a thing at all and is part of what makes demon lords and even the lowest of demons so potentially dangerous. And that is the fact that demons don't have souls the way that most living beings are considered to. So a demon instead has life essence. And this is a very important distinction because when a demon is able to leave the abyss, whether that is through summoning or through finding some kind of portal or through their own personal power, whatever the case may be, when a demon leaves the abyss and is killed, they automatically return to the abyss with their full power intact. They don't die. It is only when a demon is killed in the abyss that it actually ceases to be. And part of the reason that this is so very much underappreciated, a smart creature, whether that's a demon lord or just a powerful mortal, gets access to demon summoning spells. And so if you have a demon that is under your control, which we'll get to more a little bit later on, and you send it to spy or assassinate someone, then even after the, your control runs out or the demon dies, then if you're able to summon that same demon again, they would have that full knowledge. So they make incredibly effective scouts that don't die. And because of the fact that they don't even have a soul, then that would mean that even the rare effects that would, would normally trap a soul wouldn't work on demons because they don't have one. So it is incredibly hard to stop a demon from potentially coming back. And also for a high level game, this makes demons that much more effective as a boss type creature, because even if the players are strong enough to flat out kill a powerful demon or even a demon lord, they don't stay dead. And if a demon lord, for example, were to be defeated by a party of mortals when they were you know, on vacation in the material plane, well, they are likely to be creature holding a grudge. And that means that if they decide to go after the party again as a round two, they're going to be that much smarter about it, that much more careful about it. So an enemy who does not stay dead and that the party 
has probably no way to really stop them from coming back until they get to the point of, I mean, the ninth level spell gate could get them to the abyss uh, or, you know, plane of travel. But point being, it is only high level characters or players with a particularly high level ally on their side to get access to the abyss where they would be able to, if they track down the demon, give it a final death. So if you want to have a recurring villain, demons are a fantastic choice because of that sheer difficulty in keeping them down. And then it is only when they're high enough level that they could finally, you know, plan the assault or invasion or what have you to give that antagonist a final death. So I mentioned a moment ago about how demons are trying to get to the mortal plane. And that is a huge part of demons in general. So if a demon dies in the abyss, it dies. They're fucking terrified of that possibility. So demons in general want to leave the abyss, which is part of why so many of them try to tempt cultists to, you know, summon demons from hell or from the abyss to, you know, invade or raid the material plane. So there is an in-game and in-world, therefore, potential explanation of why are there so many cultists that are constantly trying to summon demons, and why the hell are the demons even trying to get out of hell in the first place? So that makes sense from both sides of things. The demons want to basically get that extra life because if they do whatever they want on the material plane or element anywhere that's not the abyss and then die, they just go back. So if they die in the abyss, they die. So there is strong incentive for them to try to get the fuck out of there. And on the other hand, when you have the more powerful demons, then it makes sense on their end. Well, not make sense, but just gives them the incentive to try to tempt mortals to summon demons. Because the more people that summon demons, then the more able they are to get their spies out in the world or to get whatever they want done, whatever their schemes may be. Whether that is just getting out of hell themselves or whether that is just trying to gather more power for themselves. So there are so many demon lords and so many demons in general, well, not so many, an infinite number. Because of the fact that the abyss is infinite layers, there are literally an infinite number of demons available. And one detail about demon lords that is actually specifically spelled out is the fact that there are a lot of named demon lords throughout the books. However, because of the fact that the abyss is infinite, there are an infinite number of potential demon lords. So in uh, the, just in the monster manual, it even just has a little paragraph category that just says other demon lords, which is just that there can be others. So dungeon masters absolutely have the creativity to just make up whatever the fuck they want. So if they want there to be, you know, uh, demon lords that represent stuff, there could be, you know, like the, I don't know, demon prince of corruption, demon prince of lust, you know, demoness of whatever. You can make up whatever you want. And yes, that is always the case. But I like when the dungeon or when the D&D books do spell out the fact that creativity is very much an encouraged thing. So having that regarding the top tier of powerful creatures in the abyss, 
is something that's appreciated. And even if that just is a thing that you're not particularly good at, they have, I don't know, a dozen or so named demon lords that they give stats for. And then they even just give uh, names of just other demon lords that could potentially exist. And uh, just a minor tangent about the other demon lords also, just a detail that I find hilarious that just most people aren't likely to realize. So one of the listed other demon lords, it just has the name Pazuzu, Prince of the Lower Lower Aerial Kingdoms. So <laughs> that's a brilliant name. So it's a funny name, but what's hilarious about it, in my opinion, is the fact that Pazuzu is a an actual historical uh, being. So that is an ancient Mesopotamian king of demons. So the fact that they use that name is actually a historical reference, which is a detail that I appreciate. But also, uh, have you ever heard of the horror movie, The Exorcist? Yes. So Pazuzu is actually used as the name of the demon in The Exorcist. So an argument could be made that if a dungeon master wanted to, they could basically do a crossover of The Exorcist in D&D. And just use that as the template for the demon lord and make a crazy horror kind of game. And the idea of that, of just having that mixed genre of horror into your fantasy, is a fantastic idea, in my opinion, that can just give you an example of, oh, okay, so that's something different that I can do. I don't have to treat all demons quite the same way. I can use other popular fiction as inspiration for the type of game I want to play. So the fact that D&D is that flexible and that demon lords can be used in different ways than just, you know, the muscular being who is a hard creature to fight, to have that more subtle style of powers with possession and that kind of shit, that is fantastic. So that is just that tiny little detail. It just has the word, the name and the title, but most people I doubt would even realize that fact or even just know the fact that Pazuzu is the name of the demon in The Exorcist. But as is known, I'm a nerd and I love this shit. <laughs> so that tangent over, back to other demons. <laughs> so, uh, man, I just totally distracted myself with that rant. Oh, okay. So another fun just aspect, for lack of a better word, of using demons is the fact that much like aberrant creatures, if they are out of the abyss, they have uh, what is said to, so the phrase here is one that I like, a stain of abyssal corruption with them. So them just being out of the abyss fucks up whatever is around them. So it mentions plants wither and die. Animals shun the sites where a demon has killed. So they quite literally corrupt the land just from being there. So this is another fantastic potential for a dungeon master to run that kind of horror-themed game of just the land is dying and the party is trying to help figure out why. And then maybe, you know, there's a druid who could be a potential ally or antagonist or just figuring out what is happening because so many creatures in D&D have environmental effects that just trying to figure out, ah, demon. Okay, how do we find the demon? How do we deal with the demon? There are so many angles that a dungeon master and players 
can take to try to resolve such a situation. So another fun detail. So I mentioned the whole semi-immortality thing that demons have access to. However, they actually can take it one step farther as well to try to protect their life essence. So what they can potentially do is create an amulet that holds a part of their essence. And what that does is protect them so that in the event their body in the abyss is destroyed, they can use that amulet as a tie to reform. Does that sound familiar to you, Nathan? It's almost like a demonic phylactery. <laughs> uh, yep. Although, actually, it's the other way around. A phylactery is, in fact, the mortal variant of this process. So it is through demons that powerful mortals try to learn this secret in order to become a lich. It is through said bargaining that liches exist at all. And that is another just fun detail in the world, but can also be a fantastic kind of plot hook. So imagine if a powerful magic user tries to summon a demon to try to get the secrets of making a phylactery from a demon. So that's the kind of thing that if a party ever discovers could create a rather interesting just plot hook. So the idea of, okay, do we think that this guy would be worse as a lich? Like, just have there be a neutral or even good character that is going after this and see, does the party believe that they should help or hinder this guy in said goal? So a person who wants to be a lich is very rarely something that I see actually played out in D&D. It's more often the case of there just is a lich, they suck, kill them, destroy the phylactery. But there's so much potential story in other angles that that can be done, and demons are the key to beginning such a plot. So I've been talking on and off about demon summoning. That is something that is rather complicated, but at the same time, surprisingly easy. So there are multiple spells that summon creatures in D&D. So the easiest one is summon lesser demons. That is only a third level spell. So lesser demons, that spell is available to warlocks and wizards. So both of those classes are full spellcasters, which means that that spell would be available to fifth level, excuse me, to fifth level characters. So as soon as a warlock or wizard is only fifth level, they can potentially begin summoning demons. And part of what is so much fun about that whole class of spells, summon lesser demons as well as summon greater demons, is the fact that the demons are not on your side. It even mentions in the spell, the demons are hostile to all creatures, including you, and that the demons will pursue and attack the nearest non-demons to the best of their ability. And the fact that they are truly a chaotic evil creature for this style of demon, they are generally going to be the stupid type of chaotic evil, and that's what you're summoning them for, to be your attack dogs. So the fact that you get access to that so early, and that even as you get higher level up and gain access to some greater demon, which can potentially let you get the more unique type of demons, I mean, so let me actually talk a little bit more detail about some greater demon, because it's really cool. So you summon demons. 
you choose the demon's type. However, the exact details of any demon, if you want to actually have this become a recurring thing, could very much be something that you talk over with your DM. So part of how to not get killed by your own demons is through something called the true name. So that is a magical fact, for lack of a better word, that every demon lord has and most lower demons also still have. And that if you know a demon's true name, then that gives you additional control over it that can be very important considering just how strong a demon can potentially be. I just find it really funny when, when you're talking about true name because I'm just imagining two like wizards or something talking to each other about it and it's like, you don't even know your demon's true name yet. You know, <laughs> something along those lines. So actually, uh, unfortunately, it's actually kind of easy to get a true name if you can create the correct circumstances. But this is oh, one of those... Kind of sad. Hold on. This is one of those details where a DM could potentially change the rule, but the rules as written have it unfortunately easy. So there is actually in the monster manual a specific paragraph, or a sidebar rather, on true names that mentions a demon can be forced to disclose its true name if charmed. And ancient scrolls and tomes are said to exist that list the true names of the most powerful demons. However, that is the rules as written. It is always up to the dungeon master whether they want it to be that easy. So it could just be, well, let me choose the more strict interpretation. A demon can be forced to disclose its true name if charmed. So that would mean that, number one, the magic user would have to summon the demon without knowing its true name, with all the potential danger of it escaping control, or they would need to have an uh, ally or some kind of trap set up to control the demon to charm it to get it to disclose the full name. So it's not a very easy situation because you'd need to have a good plan to charm the demon while still having it summoned. On the other hand, the ancient scrolls and tomes thing, that's just cool. So that could mean that you could have a quest to try to find a demon's name that can be your you know, future summon. So then you have that additional plot hook to find the true name before you're able to summon a more powerful one for the first time. So you could have it be that the weaker ones need to get charmed in order to disclose the name. And then maybe the stronger ones you can't summon until you know the true name. So there are a few ways on how you could choose to play that. And that is, as always, up to the dungeon master. So if you're a player, definitely just ask your DM how they would want to handle that for summoning demons. Uh, on the other hand, most dungeon masters or just games that I've played that use demons in general rarely bother with the true name side of things and usually just use the summon demon spells without the true name and just roll the dice hoping that they can control the demon without the advantage that the true name gives. However, it is an important part of using demons that true names make it a lot easier and safer to use them. So as always, just on you, whether that is how you want to play that. So I mentioned the demon lords, and I talked about them actually a good amount, but I'm going to talk about them more because they're really freaking cool. So exactly what a warlock patron is, is always something that can be hand wave or that can be more detailed. However, I like the idea of warlocks knowing what kind of deal they have. 
not always, but in general, that's just how I like to play. So the idea of there being these known demon lords gives a dungeon master a known set of goals of what this particular creature may want. So as an example, there's a demon lord that is known as Grasset, who basically looks like a large-sized drow, and he is, for lack of a better word, I don't remember exactly what his title is, but he's kind of the demon lord of lust. So ah, that's it. The Prince of Pleasure. That's his, his actual written title. So his whole shtick is seduction, domination, all that kind of stuff. So it could very much be that, okay, Grazit creates a warlock that's goal is to corrupt beautiful women to get sent down to his lair of the abyss when they die. Or perhaps even to like sacrifice beautiful people in a particular ritual to send them down to him. Or maybe Grazit just makes a deal with an attractive person just flat out so that when they die, they will join his harem. Like there are, as always, multiple different paths that a person can take. Or the, just the fact that, okay, maybe Grazit is annoyed that everyone thinks that he's a drow because of the way that he looks. So maybe he just has a hate on for drow and wants to just kind of create an inquisition against them. So tries to steer his warlocks into exterminating drow. Like exactly how you choose to use any demon lord has an infinite number of angles that they can be taken. I say that a lot also. Anyway, point being, demons, even though they are all chaotic evil, have a number of very fun directions that they can be taken. And they are scattered through a lot of books. So there is no one source to really have all of the information in one place. But I do highly recommend looking around for information on demons and using them in your campaigns because, as is always the goal, it's fun. Thanks for listening to this episode of Rifts and Rules. Please leave us a review and give us five stars on iTunes. Also, support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast. Tier starts low as a dollar and even that much really helps us out. Supporters get benefits such as behind the scenes content, only access to episodes, access to the Patreon Discord where we will shout the cast and even a shout out on the show. Find us on social media on Twitter at Riffwake Podcast, on Facebook as Riffwake and on Reddit on the subreddit r slash Riffwake Podcast. And now send us an email riffsandrules at gmail.com. That's riffsandrules at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Bye. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. 
Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.